Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, June 23rd. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. A lot to cover this week, including the latest on the charges laid against two Canadian men currently in a Chinese prison and a look at the forecasted timeline for a COVID-19 vaccination. Is it even realistic? It's become a common practice during the pandemic working from home. We look at the possibility of this new normal becoming permanent and what effect that could have on both employees and the companies they work for. He's been a fixture on City Council for a decade now, but Ward 12 Councillor Shane Keating has announced he will not be seeking re-election. We'll catch up with Councillor Keating on what his plans are beyond City Hall. The devastating hailstorm that rolled through Calgary earlier this month has countless residents still picking up the pieces after suffering extensive damage to their homes and cars. We talk with Tammy Truman of Truman Insurance about the process ahead and what every homeowner should know about what's covered and what's not. And finally, it's a new park for the city of Calgary that highlights the history of Vietnamese Canadians. We'll hear the details behind Journey Park. 610 on the morning news. Always lots to cover with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We'll get to the fiscal impact of the pandemic. Also, uh, the short timeline when it comes to predictions of a vaccine. Are, are we getting false hope? But I want to start, Mercedes, with the two Michaels and, of course, news that charges have been laid against our two uh, Michaels, uh, so to speak, earlier this week. Uh, hearing now that U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, the quote is that he is extremely concerned with these charges. Is this really the first reaction we've had in some time from the U.S., Mercedes? You know, they've consistently talked about the fact that they are also pressing for the release of the two Michaels. But, of course, this is a very new and serious development. Um, and so what we're seeing is expected in the sense that it is triggering other countries, including the United States and China, uh, to respond to what Canada is saying, to respond to what's happening. Keep in mind, Michael Spavler and Michael Covery were arrested in December of 2018. That is a long time ago. Mm. Um, and it is just last week that they are finally charged. Uh, the China experts who we've been talking to say this is exactly what they thought was going to happen, that it's a direct result of what happened with Meng Wanzhou just, uh, you know, well, now several days ago in Canada where she was found that the double criminality, uh, which was a question mark and what she was in court for initially to try to shut down the extradition, was in fact in place. That just means that what she's accused of uh, in terms of a crime being committed would also be considered a crime in Canada as well as the United States. Therefore, the extradition case can proceed. There's still many more steps than that. But as soon as that happened, the Chinese respond. And remember at the beginning of all this when government officials sort of say, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, we, we don't know why these Canadians are being held. It's completely mm-hmm. spurious. Um, that, those days are gone. China and Canada now very clearly say it's about the Huawei case. Um, the two Michaels were taken because there's a connection to Huawei. They're not going to be released until or unless Meng Wanzhou is. Um, and, of course, our justice system is very different than the Chinese justice system. So the prime minister is now very direct in saying that behind the scenes from day one, China made it clear to them what this was. Um, and I think that's not surprising. It would tr- trigger a strong response to the United States, who also knew this. Of course, they've been talking about it behind closed doors. But the change we're seeing is in how this is being discussed publicly now. Yeah. And yesterday, I mean, a perfect example of that, right? The Prime Minister coming out and saying there will be no prisoner swap. China, you know, slamming Trudeau. Trudeau saying back, listen, we all know what this is. You said it, what, what it was from the beginning. So it, it, it's is it going to get nasty, do you think? Or, I mean, it can it be even nastier than what it is? 
it, it definitely can get nastier. Um, remember previously what's happened after there's been developments with Meng Wanzhou. Uh, there's developments with the Michaels, and then usually there's some kind of a development to do with the Canadian product. Um, so canola was hit, for example. The Chinese were talking about uh, they, saying that they had found uh, wood, bugs inside the Canadian right. wood that was arriving, right? That might be something. They could go after Canadian lumber uh, imports. So I would not be surprised if we see some sort of a trade action that's very much something consistent with Chinese policy. They've done it to Australia as well. If they don't like something, uh, they will find a way to punish you with trade, which is very effective in terms of uh, it being painful because they're just such a huge economy that they can afford to do things, quite literally, uh, that would be very painful for the Canadian economy to sort of retaliate with. So that, that's entirely possible. It's possible that Canada could take tougher steps, uh, although we haven't really seen any sign that they're willing to do so yet. They sort of seem to just think the best approach at this point is to not further provoke China. But some experts are saying, look, at the end of the day, you're probably not going to strike back economically in a direct sense. But you could do things like say you're not going to allow Chinese international students anymore to come to Canada. Um, that would be very tough on Canadian universities because they pay a lot of money to go mm -hmm. here. But it would send a, a major message to a lot of Chinese elites who send their kids to school in Canada. Uh, you could cut off tourist visas. Again, it would hurt our economy too, but that's something that would create a lot of pressure internally inside China uh, on the regime there. So they're trying to find a way, I think, to, to handle this, to get the two Michaels released. But because you're dealing with such a behemoth, it is challenging to find a way to do that that doesn't hurt your own people here as well at the same time. Right. So I think the question is, at some point, will they hit that? Uh, that trigger where they make the decision that they are willing to make some sacrifices here too. Mm. Um, I don't know. We'll see what happens next, but it's obviously a very concerning development. Switching gears and talking COVID-19, we all want to see a vaccine for the virus, uh, but something you covered on the West Block on Sunday, false hope. We're hearing that there's, you know, maybe months away, uh, but from what you've uh, talked to uh, with one immunologist, uh, that's not the case, and, and it might be uh, pie in the sky, uh, uh, you know, thinking to have a vaccine in months and, and not years. Yeah, and, you know, we've sort of heard this with a number of experts we've spoken to, that they say, Oh, the idea of a vaccine within a year is probably not very realistic. Um, but this particular expert says that he's actually speaking out about it. It's not just his opinion. He is saying politicians and everybody out there needs to stop offering what he characterizes potentially false hope of a vaccine within a year. Even 18 months, he thinks, is unlikely. He is projecting four years. And this is someone who's been involved in a lot of vaccine research. And he says the mistake people are making and politicians are making is to assume that because a new flu vaccine can be produced every year, this can be too. Coronavirus is not a flu virus. There's never been a vaccine for coronavirus before. And there's a whole regulatory approval process that'll have to go through once they even manage to develop it. And we don't have a sense yet of how the virus is going to mutate. So what he's saying is, look, when politicians are saying the new normal will not happen until there's a vaccine, he doesn't believe that's true. He thinks that the pandemic will run its course before we ever have a vaccine developed. But that will probably take until the end of 2021. And he raised another really interesting point where he said... Uh, physical distancing is important because it prevents the spread and it prevents hospitals from being overwhelmed. But we really need to think about how we do it because there have been no deaths in Canada of anybody under the age of 20 from COVID-19 
and actually a very low infection rate, around 200 cases. So the flu, on the other hand, has killed a number of people under the age of 20. So he's saying you, know, you can't keep the physical distancing forever. You want to use it to slow down the curve. But at some point, you're going to have to look at who you realistically need to keep physically distant and who, in fact, is probably relatively safe to be mm-hmm. going out and returning a little bit more to normal than others. You know, absolutely. And we spoke with an expert, too, who said, you know, a, a, um, a vaccine usually takes 10 to 12 years. So, yeah, that one year, it, it looks like pie in the sky for sure. Thanks for joining us always, Mercedes. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, guys. That's Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy established amenities, recreation facilities, and the leading school districts. 710 on the morning news. COVID-19 has required many employees to work from home and set up home offices. Are employees being fully compensated, however? And should we be expecting salary changes of the, if this new way of working becomes the normal way? To start the conversation, we're joined by Professor McGill School of Urban Planning, Richard Shearmere. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Well, this is an interesting time because, yes, maybe some people have worked from home in the past, but for many, A, this is their first time, and B, they may not have even considered working from home until they had to because of the pandemic. So for many people, uh, this is something that they didn't plan for to begin with. Yes, it's something they didn't plan for. And often people are now discovering actually some, some of the benefits of working from home. Um, I mean, and also some of the frustrations. You know, we don't see colleagues, it's more difficult to communicate. But the first uh, impression of people is, wow, you know, this is great. This is something I would quite like to do. But now we're seeing some companies saying, well, there's so many savings that are involved, you know, in terms of real estate, in terms of the cleaning of the offices, that why don't employees work at home permanently? But if employees work at home permanently, then the current setup, I mean, many of us, uh, except for those who maybe already have a home office, are working on the corner of a kitchen table or working in the living room, Mm. have our pets coming and so on, um, are going to have to set up properly, which would mean getting a a separate room for the office, uh, getting ergonomic chairs, getting a desk upgrading our internet connection there's a whole number of expenses not to mention heating the house 24 7 in winter you know often we can turn the thermostat down during the day when we're out um there's a whole bunch of expenses which i think uh, employees are going to begin to realize if this becomes permanent and then the question is who pays for these expenses Mm -hmm. Uh, because currently they're paid for by the employer who rents the office gives you the desk uh, the chair and all that and now it's the employee who is paying Um, and the question is should they get compensated and how much should they get compensated for this and you know does that does that translate to a raise or does the the boss or the company come in and kind of set your office up and and then leave you as such or does that mean you know you're going to get a decrease in pay because you now don't have to pay to drive and to park and your gas and all the other expenditures it's an interesting conversation for sure what what's your take on that do you think that the businesses have a bit more responsibility here to set people up at home I think they certainly have responsibility to set people up. And, and this, you know, in, in the, I mean, right now it's an emergency, we understand. But in the longer term, if there's an expectation to work from home for employees, then we've got to enter into the questions of sort of health and safety at work, of the ergonomics. And so I think there's a responsibility of the employer, certainly for the uh, equipment. But then there are things which are a gray area, such as the extra space which is taken up. 
I mean, typically employers don't pay for your rent or for your mortgage. Mm -hmm. But if you need a larger house or uh, a larger apartment in order to set up properly, where, uh, who pays for those expenses? Now, there are systems, and I'm thinking particularly of the T2200 uh, form, where employers can declare that some expenses are necessary for employees to work at home. And so you, you may be able to get a, a, a tax deduction for some expenses that come out of the employee's pocket. So there's a, a sort of a, a combination, I think, of the employer needing to make sure that the setup, the internet connection, the computer, the desk are, are, are sort of provided, I think, as expenses. And if they're not, there must be a compensation in terms of, of salary. As you point out, though, not every employee is in the same situation. Some are actually making considerable savings on longer commutes. Mm -hmm. um, others are, in fact, not saving much. I do my work in Montreal, so I've looked at the people living in and around Montreal, where typically commutes are, um, particularly those taking the uh, metro or buses, mm -hmm. are not that long or that expensive. So the savings aren't huge, but the extra expenses are quite large. Somebody commuting 50 kilometers by car, the equation may be different. But the whole point is we need to actually start putting numbers to this and thinking it through. You mentioned that the employer themselves, uh, you know, saving some money, whether or not that's the cleaning of the offices, as you mentioned, or even coffee, if you will. Uh, can we put a dollar figure on how much an employer might be saving per employee from having them work at home? Again, it will vary from employer to employer, but one number that seems to sort of be doing the rounds and which was actually published before the COVID crisis um, back in um, late 2019 was that employers will save approximately, this was a U.S. estimate, approximately $10,000 per year per employee. Wow if they um, sort of can get rid of the uh, floor space and all the other expenses linked with that employee. So it's quite considerable savings for employers, which helps us to understand why companies like Shopify and Twitter, now that they see that people are working from home, is saying, hang on, why don't we do it permanently? Right. Uh, so so is, is it time for, for the, the worker then to go talk to the boss or the organization, or is this something that uh, you know companies are really in the process of looking into at this point, do you think? I, I think there's a great variety. I think some companies are definitely looking into this already. And I've actually been doing, or me and some of my students have been doing some interviews uh, very recently with, with people um, trying to work out what their work arrangements are during the COVID crisis. Some have employers who are definitely very proactive in terms of um, the various expenses to do with equipment. We're not yet talking about uh, floor area in the house and all that. Um, but others are left totally to their own devices. I mean, we've been interviewing people who are basically having to work uh, lying on their beds all day. Now, that may sound wonderful, but it's actually quite a terrible way <laughs> yeah. to work, except that because there are two other kids in the house and maybe a, a brother or a parent in, in the uh, house as well, it's the only place that they can have privacy and quiet. Um, so I think there needs to be a... I think workers need to go and talk about it with employers, but I think there needs to be a wider sort of public discussion, like the one I'm trying to initiate, because it's very difficult as a single worker to go and negotiate with your employer. But if these questions become aired more widely, then the discussion becomes more of a national discussion. You know, w what are the savings, if there are any? I think there are for many uh, employers, um, but also what are the savings for employees? Um, and to try and maybe w work out some, some formulas or some principles so that the costs aren't all put on the, um, uh, the back of employees because there is a tendency when the, the employers are talking now publicly about the savings that they're making to not take into account the costs which are put on the back of employees. And I think that also needs to be put in the equation.
Good points. Uh, thank you very much. This is a conversation that will continue. Thanks, Richard. Thank you very much. That Bye. is Richard Shearmer, professor at the McGill School of Urban Planning. 717, it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's last and best master planned community inside the Stony Trail Ring Road. Sue DL, Andrew Schultz on the morning news at 8.12. And in a social media message yesterday, Ward 12 Councillor Shane Keating announced he will not seek re-election in next October's municipal election. He joins us now to chat about it. Good morning, Councillor. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. What prompted your decision yesterday, or had it been coming for some time? Yeah, no, it, ha- it actually had been coming for some time. I, am, I made a decision uh, a long time ago not to to uh, stay for too long um, we used to have three years in a term and then it switched to four um, and I've always thought that uh, to some degree three terms and in this case it would be 11 years is long enough so 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 what would be next then what what would take you from this glamorous lifestyle Council? I would work in <laughs> shop um, I intend to sit and do many projects for my children and grandchildren in the near future great and, and tell us about your uh, what what, t- what type of woodworking you do. What what is your style look like? Uh, uh, I've done uh, I, I done almost anything in many ways. Some some furniture, some hobbies. I I do want to get uh, to the point of making uh, some three foot doll houses for the the youngest granddaughters. Uh, those sorts of things. But um, I used to teach uh, industrial arts if you at that time. So I've uh, been at it for quite some time. I think that'll be a very relaxing way to, uh, you know, spend the next few years because it's certainly not been super relaxing, I imagine, being on the political scene at the municipal level. What what are your thoughts about, you know, as you head towards the end of your term now, you know, what it's become and, and the way it is? Will you, will you miss it at all? Um, well, I mean, you're always going to miss the the time that you sit and have, have great conversations, uh, you know, about what will be and what will Will not be sort of thing. So you're you're going to have that because that's uh, that's a debate that will go on forever. I, I do remember a time, um, a long time ago, uh, driving downtown on Memorial, stopping, and that's when the bow was still uh, under construction. Um, and and the thought process was is, you know, it, it's absolutely amazing, and it's not so much that we as councillors are movers and shakers in the world. Um, but you happen to have your finger on the pulse of the city, um, so that part will be will, will be missing. Where you <clears throat> you won't have inside and intimate knowledge of, of things that are, are going on. But uh, at the same time, uh, that's for someone else to do in the future. <laughs> so what's, that's their problem, I think, is what you're saying. <laughs> you mentioned that insider insight that the constituents might not know about. What's one other thing you can tell people listening uh, to 770 CHQR right now about uh, what the life of a councillor is like that they might not understand? You know, um, I'll go a little bit on the negative side, um, which is a very small amount, but it certainly impacts you uh, to a degree. Uh, you do work 60 and 80 hours a week for the betterment of the community, um, and you uh, sometimes don't need the same individuals uh, on a daily basis telling how bad you are. Um, you know, and that's something that they, they may not understand. Uh, you also have to understand, uh, you know, there, there's many things in the city that we can do and, and uh, help. Uh, there's many things that we cannot. And the difficulty is uh, when you have to... Uh, 
tell someone that that's far beyond our reach um, and uh, unfortunately I I can't help you with that scenario um, but um, you know when you, you look back and you look at all the ways in which you've uh, made it a little more positive for individuals across the board um, that outweighs all of the negativity. Councillor Keating, you leave knowing that the Green Line LRT is a go. You're a big proponent of that. Does that uh, obviously sort of a, a legacy that you're happy to leave behind? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I look back at it and I still go back to 2013 and 14 when we made the um, $52 million tax room decision. Um, for the benefit of the city, that was absolutely the best decision I could ever made, and I would make it over and over again. Um, but uh, when you look at what we get from that and what the individual taxpayer would have got, uh, it far outweighs anything um, you know that comes in there. So, looking in um, ten years from now, where um, you know it'll be completed, and I bet you the. The next station will be already under construction. Um, I would uh, hope I'd be able to come back and see it and, and take it for a ride. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us this morning, Councillor Keating. Thank you. That is Shane Keating, Ward 12 Councillor. 817, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Come visit the largest concrete-built condos in the city. Several Northeast Calgary community associations are banding together now, urging the province to declare that June 13th hailstorm oh, just 10 days ago. They want it being declared a natural disaster, which would trigger some government relief for them. The group says a lot of the residents have been told their insurance companies will only cover, in some cases, 20% of costs. So to understand this better, we're joined this morning by Tammy Truman, owner of Calgary's Truman Insurance Agency. Hi, Tammy. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you explain what they mean by that? So, you know, if my siding got destroyed by hail in that storm, for example, I might get only 20% of the replacement cost? Uh, there isn't a depreciation on siding. It's really only the roof. Okay. So because of the massive hailstorms over the years in Alberta, uh, to my knowledge, all insurance companies have what's called a depreciation on your roof when it comes to wind or hailstorms and it's based on the age of your roof okay. so the first 10 years there's no depreciation so if you have a you know house in 19 um or 2010 and above you're going to get a brand new roof but after that it starts depreciating so much every year i see because there's only a certain lifetime of a roof correct Correct. Gotcha. And insurance isn't met, meant to, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, it's supposed to be for sudden and accidental, not uh, wear and tear. Okay, makes no sense. Can you walk us through the uh, process, Tammy, if I find that I have damage from, for example, a hailstorm or flood damage, whatever it might be, what happens? Because I know that adjusters have to be sent out. What is the process? How long does it uh, take before an, uh, an idea or a decision is made? Um, when we have a massive storm like this, we usually have what we call storm teams right on the spot. Um, so they will try to come out, do an estimate. You call, they set up an appointment, they'll come take a look at the damages, and they will offer you the cash right there if you want to just settle and carry on and you're done. Oh, wow. Okay, so it can be done really quickly because I, I'd been hearing some people said it was really drawn out, but if, if you get your team on, on site pretty quickly, the money can come very fast to, to the homeowners themselves. 
Absolutely, because right now there's not enough contractors or roofers. You know, there's no way. There's tens of thousands of damaged structures, so it's going to take quite some time. But if someone has a friend or somebody that they want or they know that can do the damages, for sure, we will do a cash settlement, and then they can go ahead and find whoever they want to fix their damages. Tammy, you've been in the insurance game for quite some time. How would you say this uh, uh, storm stacks up as, as far as some of the claims and the damage you've seen? It, it's right up there for sure. Um, I'm not sure it's going to top the billion that, uh, you know, had been reported, like for the floods. But we do believe for sure it's going to surpass the Airdrie Hill storm in 2014, and that was over $500 million. Wow. So... You know, hail, it's just unbelievable how much damage that the hail continues to cause in this strip, including Alberta. And boy, the strip that, in Alberta. And that storm was just, it, the damage it did over in the far northeast was unbelievable. What about for the vehicles, Tammy? Is anything different with that? Is the same deal, you'd get paid out pretty quickly? Or or do you have the option to just wait and have the, the something fixed and replaced later on? Uh, you bet. Um, because again, some people don't want to take the time. They don't. They don't care driving around if their vehicle is full of hail damage. So they may be interested in taking a cash settlement. Something a lot of people don't realize um, on the flood portion of those vehicles that we're sitting on Deerfoot Trail. If your vehicle has been submerged in water and it goes past the motor, that vehicle is automatically written off. We're going to be talking about this one for quite some mm-hmm. time. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Tammy. Yeah, you bet. Have a great day. You too. That is Tammy Truman, owner of Truman Insurance. 647. Now it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy spectacular views of the city skyline and the Rocky Mountains. Seven nineteen. We've been missing a lot of things through this pandemic and our libraries. Just one of those things. Joining us this morning, Mary Capusta, who's the communications director at the Calgary Public Library. Hi, Mary. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Big day for you guys as you start to gradually reopen. What's the plan for today? Well, I mean, we're just so excited to be able to offer access to our locations. Uh, We've been doing a lot since we closed all locations on March 16th virtually, and our curbside service has been really popular. It's still available at all locations, but today we're taking the first steps towards a gradual reopening of locations. We're opening three locations, Fish Creek, Forest Lawn, and Crowfoot Library. you know, reduced hours and metered access, but we want to make sure that we're giving some access to the library during this time. We know a lot of people have missed it. Yeah. So access within the doors of the library. How is it going to look, Mary? Well, I, I, it's going to be, I think, very similar to what we're seeing in our community. But we do want to prepare people that it's going to be a little bit different for a little while as we are continue or as we continue to come out of this. So, what are some of the main things? Well, first, don't come if you have any symptoms, if you've been traveling recently, or have been in close contact with anyone with COVID. Um, secondly, as you come to the door, you're going to see a sanitizing station. So, we're asking everyone to please clean their hands before entering the library. So, you're going to see that just inside the door. We're also encouraging people 
people to wear a mask. Uh, if you require support from our staff in under two meters, you're both going to have to wear a mask. So probably a good idea just to bring one. And then finally, we're also asking if you could con consider limiting your visit to 60 minutes to make sure we can serve more people because we are going to be reducing capacities. But once you're inside the library, physical distancing measures, um, sanitizing stations throughout the library, um, some areas will be closed, um, but for instance, printing, Wi-Fi, computers, those will all be available. And can I just go about willy-nilly touching everything? You can because we're following industry standards related to quarantine materials. So it's really interesting thinking about books. Uh, the first step, of course, is good hand washing, personal hygiene, and that's why cleaning your hands when you come into the library is really important. Mm -hmm. Our staff have all gone through additional training. Our facilities are all having enhanced cleaning measures, um, but we're also beginning a quarantine process for books. So right now we have about half a million items that are still in the community checked out. So we're asking you to keep holding on to those books until your home location is reopened. But once when you do come to a reopened library, you're going to see a large quarantine area inside the front doors, and that's where you can place those books. Okay. But let's say you're in the library and you're browsing, checking out some books. Maybe you've been holding on to a book for a while and you don't want to take it. Don't worry, we're always going to have quarantine boxes within the library as well, just to be extra safe. You mentioned the quarantine area to return the books inside. What about those little drop slots? Are they closed right now? Thanks for asking, Andrew. Those still remain closed. So all exterior shoots are closed. If you do have a material to return and your home library has reopened, uh, you can only return it inside the library during those operating hours. And I would just note all the hours and the locations that are available and services at those locations are all at calgarylibrary.ca. Calgarylibrary.ca. Love it. Thank you. Forest Lawn, Crowfoot, Fish Creek Libraries all opening today. Thanks so much, Mary. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. You too. That's Mary Capusta. Communications director at the Calgary Public Library. 819 on the morning news. Anne-Marie Pham is from the Calgary Vietnamese Canadian Association and she joins us now to discuss a new park which commemorates the Vietnamese people's immigration journey. Good morning to you, Anne-Marie. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, what is the name going to be for this new park and, and, and where will it be uh, located? Yeah, you bet. So we would like to name this new park the Journey to Freedom Park. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it is to commemorate uh, the immigration journey of Vietnamese Canadians, in particular the boat people as we call them. So all of those who escaped um, after the fall of Saigon in 1975. And uh, the location of the park is going to be pretty much at the intersection of Deerfoot Trail and 17th Avenue Southeast, so in the Greater Forest Lawn area. Has this been a big push, Anne-Marie, to try and get this park built, named, and, and you know, honoring the Vietnamese people here in our city? There is. There, you know, this has been a dream of uh, Vietnamese Calgarians for a long time now. Uh, many of us have been here for decades now in Canada, and we have, you know, children, second generation uh, living here and doing really, really well. But we wanted to really build this park to commemorate the story, to keep history alive. But a huge part of this is also to thank all the Calgarians who, you know, sponsored us and welcomed us uh, to settle in Calgary. And they give us uh, really the freedom right here uh, in Canada. So we're very proud to be Canadians, to contribute to society. Um, and hopefully this space is going to provide us with an opportunity to reflect on that, uh, to share our immigration journey with all Calgarians, and also hopefully to provide another park and another beautiful space for people to enjoy. Mm -hmm. 
Anne-Marie, can you tell us about the size of the Vietnamese community in the city of Calgary and uh, how tight the community is? Yeah, for sure. So according to the 2016 census, uh, we have over 21,000 Calgarians of Vietnamese heritage. And now we probably think it's closer to 30,000. And we are a tight community in the sense that, um, you know, there are quite a number of community organizations that support uh, the the health and vibrancy of the community, uh, from children's uh, groups, uh, language schools. We've got uh, churches and temples. We've got um, uh, programs for youth, leadership development. We have even programs for veterans and seniors. And so we work really closely together to maintain, um, you know, a good integration into our Canadian society, as well as providing a space for people to maintain their history and some of their cultural heritage. It's always wonderful to have another park in our city and to have a place where people can learn and understand a bit more about the Vietnamese community here in this city. It just sounds wonderful overall. Thanks for joining us this morning, Anne-Marie. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Anne-Marie Pham, a spokesperson for the Calgary Vietnamese Canadian Association.